Glad you're with us this morning. We're going to be looking and starting the book of Philippians today. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Philippians. Uh, and uh, I got some feedback last week. You guys like the pictures, you like the video, you like the history. And so I wanted to kind of keep with that and have a little more context about where Philippi is in the world, what's happening all around. And at the time that Paul and Timothy and Silas are visiting Philippi, and then they leave and they write the letter to the Philippians. During this time, about 300 miles to the north is a country called Dacia, D-A-C-I-A. And the people are called Dacians. Just like with Philippi and the, the regions around Philippi, Dacia was rich because of the gold mines. Lots of gold, lots of silver. They even had bronze and other precious metals. So the people of Dacia were rich. The regions around Dacia had lots of money. So they were known for two things, one of which is just being wealthy because they had so much natural resources of gold. The second thing that they were known for was their fierce warrior ship, warriorness, warrioring. There was like, got into that sentence and I was like, how do I finish their fierce warriorousness? They were fierce warriors. So Dacia was rich and they were known to be fierce warriors. So much so that Julius Caesar tried to conquer Dacia and was turned around and sent home, which didn't happen very often to Julius Caesar. So lots of gold, fierce warriors, but still most people have never heard of Dacia because they were destroyed. They were destroyed by a man named Emperor Trajan. Trajan wanted the gold, and he also wanted to one-up Julius Caesar. And so Trajan took his army and marched up to Dacia and conquered him. So in the early 100s AD, Dacia was conquered by Rome, and they became part of Rome. So they got to still have some of their freedoms like most conquered states did. They were still allowed to worship who they wanted to as long as they paid their taxes and gave Caesar honor and all the things that a conquered state possessed when Rome came in. But that wasn't enough for Trajan. So three years after conquering them, he goes back to Dacia with his army and totally destroys them. No Dacia left. The people don't even get to stay where they've lived for generations, but he scatters them, and he kicks them all out, which is why you've never heard of Dacia, because they were a strong, wealthy people that were destroyed and cast out. The Dacians don't exist as a people. There's no national identity for Dacians. There's no language. There's not even very much history known of the Dacians, even though for a couple hundred years, uh, 900 years or so, they were one of the wealthiest nations on earth. Well, Emperor Trajan, when he conquered Dacia the second time, historians are kind of having a, a large range of how much gold he actually took 
how much wealth was there. And they estimate on the low end that he took what would be equivalent to today of about $500 million from Dacia, not to count the many, many years that they would continue mining, but just in their possession, somewhere between $500 million worth of gold and over $8 billion worth of gold. They were very rich, which is part of the reason why Trajan wanted to own it. So Trajan came and he got their gold and he got their silver and he took everything that was of value. And like Roman emperors did, he came back to Rome and he threw a giant party, one of the longest parties in Roman history. It lasted 123 days. Over 1 million people came from around the empire to celebrate during that time that Emperor Trajan defeated the Dacian people. So they would like to throw big parties when they conquered somebody. They also like to set up monuments in their own name. So one of the things that Trajan did with the money is he came back and he built Trajan's Forum, which a Roman forum looks like this. It's right where that column is, and then to the left, you kind of see some of those other shorter columns. A Roman column was the, or a Roman forum was kind of the center of Roman life. They would have anything that was political, anything that was financial. They would have a marketplace. And so the commercial and political and legal, everything that was important in Roman life would come and happen at a forum. But Romans would have lots of forums, though, because every emperor came and he built his forum. And so you've got lots of different forums that were built by different emperors, and they all kind of like sit in this one area. But you'll notice that right in the middle of this forum, Trajan's forum, is what's known as Trajan's Column. He was quite a builder, but not very creative with his naming schemes. So he has Trajan's Column inside of Trajan's Forum, and the column kind of wraps a story around carved out of marble. It's like a comic book that would unfold. And so over 2,600 characters are carved by hand into the sides of this tower that are, that's 100 feet tall. And it starts at the bottom. And theoretically, if you could get up there and keep wrapping around, you could view the story of Trajan and his conquests, and mainly Trajan, because his likeness is all over it. Like every few pieces is a picture of him and him conquering somebody and him on a horse and him doing all these great things. And that wasn't enough. And so he also put his face on money and minted some Trajan-esque money with Trajan's column on the backside of the money. And so his identity was really found in himself and in his conquest. So when I was looking up this column, it's 100, 100 something feet high, and it weighs almost 1,200 tons. But nobody really knows how much a ton weighs, right? Like, I mean, you know maybe that a ton is 2,000 pounds, but then you also don't know what 2,000 pounds is, so I converted it to American for us. 1,200 tons is 200 adult elephants. 1,200 tons is 24 fully loaded semi-trucks. 1,200 tons is 10 of the largest 
animal on earth, 10 blue whales. And if you need to bring it real close to home, the chairs that you're sitting in weigh 19 pounds. 1,200 tons is 123,616 chairs that you're sitting in. That column weighs a lot. If you think back almost 2,000 years ago, they didn't just pick up the phone and call and say, hey, I'm going to need a crane that can carry these 19-ton blocks of marble. Also bring some straps. Also bring some pylons so we can make sure it doesn't drop on someone. They didn't just pick up the phone and start erecting this column. They built scaffolding, and they built giant wooden cranes that could lift up these blocks. You see it in the picture. Scaffolding there to the left and a giant wooden crane. And so they would pick up these huge, heavy, marble, round stones, and they'd bring them into place. And in the underside and in the top side of every stone, they would carve out square holes that were a few inches deep, and they would take an iron pin, and they would put two iron pins in to help the column not topple, but also help to align the column. So I'm sure that was a very low man on the totem pole's job that got to put his hands under 19-ton blocks that were held up by some ropes that the guy next door weaved together and a wooden crane. Not my first idea of like, yes, I am going to be part of the engineering team. No, no, just, just hold it and don't look because most of the people survive, but not everyone. So, but you get these guys that have to climb up the scaffolding. And they climb up the scaffolding to make sure the column sits square, to make sure it's right. Without the scaffolding, there's no towers. You see the, uh, the Roman aqueduct system, without the scaffolding, there's no aqueduct. Without the scaffolding, there's no Colosseum. If you can't get up to build the building, there's no building. They build buildings that are seven feet high because that's how high they can reach. At that point, they have to start building something up. So the scaffolding allowed them to get up and to keep building. But if you notice in this picture, if you were to go and visit the Roman aqueduct today, you wouldn't see the scaffolding. The scaffolding is no longer there because the scaffolding helps build the structure and then the scaffolding all comes down and it's all taken away. So before we get any further into our Roman scaffolding history, I do have a point and this is the point. Just in the same way that the Romans used scaffolding to build something, Paul is scaffolding in the first two verses of, Timothy, of uh, Philippians here an identity that he wants to show the Philippians. So Paul is saying, I have to build this in layers so that we can reach the top and find our identity in Christ. So let's look here at the first two verses. Paul says in Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, 
including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here wants the Philippians to build their identity on four distinct things. In this order, he says that they are servants, that they are saints, that they've received grace, and they've received peace. Those are the four things. Paul himself calls himself a servant and would then say that he is a saint. He has been set apart by God because of God's grace. And as a result of Paul receiving grace in Christ, Paul now has peace. So that's the order here that Paul writes it. If we were to take a different approach and say, not just looking at the way Paul writes it, but what is a theological order of that progression or a theological scaffolding, what we would put at the base would be grace. Because without the grace of God, we'll never be servants, we'll never be set apart, we'll never have peace if not for the grace of God. Uh, Paul also says in Ephesians 1, speaking of the grace of God, he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God has given us grace and that is demonstrated through the forgiveness of our sins. We did not deserve our sins to be forgiven, but God in his mercy and in his grace chose to forgive us of our sins. The second thing that Paul would say is as a result of God giving us grace, we are now believers in Christ. We have been set apart. We have, Paul calls them saints here. We have become saints, which just means something that is separate from something else. In this context, it's being separate from the world. That Paul is telling the Philippians that you are now distinct in Christ Jesus. Paul adds to that idea in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. That we once were, but now through God's grace, he has called us as saints and now we become something different. We are a new creation in Christ. So our scaffolding would look like grace at the bottom, that God has given us his grace. He has called us then to be saints. And then he calls us to service, which Paul lists first. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. As God gives us his grace and he sets us apart for his work, one of the things that God calls us to be is servants. Jesus demonstrated that. Paul, Timothy, Silas, there's a half dozen other people that are all called servants in the New Testament. God's picture of the grace being given, the calling and set apartness of being saints naturally leads to following Jesus who himself calls himself a servant. Let's look at John 13. Jesus speaking, he says, So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example 
that you should also do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is saying, I have shown you what it looks like to be a servant by washing your feet. Therefore, if you've received God's grace, if God has set you apart in salvation for a holy purpose, you should serve as your Lord and teacher does, willing to wash someone's feet, willing to do whatever acts of service God calls you to do. And as a result of all of that, receiving God's grace, being called and set apart as a saint for God's purposes, choosing to serve as Christ also served, the result is peace. John 14, 27 says, Jesus again, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. Jesus is saying that his peace is different from the peace that the world gives. He says, I'm giving you my peace and it's not like the world gives. In the Roman world, they had the Pax Romana, Roman peace, which for most of Rome's history meant we are stronger than you, therefore we choose peace. And if you choose not to have peace, then we destroy you and still we choose peace. So there's really no way out of Pax Romana. If Rome was stronger than you, they would give you peace. And that's what they did to most of their conquered states. If you chose not to have peace, then they would destroy you and fill your cities with new people. And they again offer peace. But Jesus is saying, that's not the peace that I give you. I don't give you peace under oppression. I don't give you peace under force. Jesus is saying that my peace that I give you is different than all of that. The peace that Jesus offers is peace in all circumstances. It doesn't matter who has conquered whom. It doesn't matter what life has given you. Paul's writing this letter from prison and saying, hey, I know a peace that God has given and it's from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So regardless of the circumstances, the grace that God has given us has led to us being set apart, which leads to us serving one another, which ultimately results in our peace. That's the scaffolding that Paul is building here. And that's not all parts of salvation. That's just the parts here that Paul has pulled out and said, for the Philippian people, this is what I want them to know as my greeting. And that's the framework and the more of a theological order that we could try to understand. So let's look a little bit more into this passage where Paul starts with Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts the address to them in the middle of verse 1, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Paul does not tell them to the saints in Philippi who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't tell them 
to the Philippians who are in Christ Jesus. You see the difference? He starts with to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. What Paul is separating out here is the difference between their spiritual and their geographic identities. Paul is giving them the priority order of how we also should establish our identity. Paul is saying that the people here in Philippi who are rich, who are Roman citizens, who have just about everything that they could want on earth are probably likely to try to find their identity in the things that they have, in the places they can go, in the freedoms that Rome gives them, in the safety that just being a Roman citizen makes them. They can go and work anywhere and make lots of money because everybody in Philippi has money. And Paul's telling them, but you're not Philippians who are Christians. You are Christians who happen to reside in Philippi. Your identity is in Christ, and where you live is this country. For us, if we said that, we would say, we are Christians who reside in America. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in the United States. We wouldn't be American Christians. We would be Christians who are American. It's subtle, but the difference is important because if we're considering who we are, what we say first is generally the most important thing to us. Culturally, if someone asks you, tell me about yourself, the first thing that we think is, this is what I do for work, or this is my hobby, or this is something important about me. What Paul is encouraging here is, know that you are saints in Christ Jesus. You happen to live in Philippi. Your identity is, first of all, saints in Christ Jesus. The Dacians had identity until Trajan came in and scattered them around the world. The Dacians have no history. They have no identity. They have no language. They have no culture. Nothing remains of them that was their cultural identity. What Paul is saying here is find your identity not in the culture, not in the society, but instead find your identity in Christ. And Paul says three things that were interesting to me. He says that Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, and grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Servants of, saints in, and grace and peace from. And we're going to look at those three things. As we think of our identity, Paul starts with his identity, with Timothy, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul was a Hebrew among Hebrews. He had studied the law. He was educated. He was a Roman citizen. He traveled. He was well-known. Paul had a lot of 
ways that he could describe his identity. Not to mention, the way Paul became a Christian was literally Jesus just came down and stood in front of him and said, Paul, I have a plan for you and I need you to go do some stuff for me. So if I were describing who I was, I'd be like, Brandon, you remember you've heard the stories, right? Jesus literally came and told me to go and do something. That's my identity now. I don't care what happens. Like, that's what I'm going to remember. But Paul says, servants. Paul finds his identity not in being able to tell people that he's so great, but tell people that he is a servant of one who is so great. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Trajan wanted his picture on everything. He wanted his name on everything. He wanted towers that would stand. He wanted money that would be passed. Every time you paid for something, you'd look down and you'd see this great man's identity. And now it's all gone. Now he's just a name in the history books. And Paul is saying, our identity is not found in accomplishments. It's not found in material possessions. It's not found in a lasting legacy. Our identity is only found in Christ. So our purpose then, if our identity is to be found in Christ, our first purpose then, Paul says, is to be servants. Servants are willing, they are fully dedicated, and they are committed to the one that they're serving. So Paul here has an individual identity. He's saying that, you know, Paul and Timothy, as he's writing this letter, he's saying Paul and Timothy, but really this letter is from Paul to the Philippians. It's, it's not from Paul and Timothy. Paul immediately goes into first-person pronouns, I, me, my. In verse 3, he starts, I give thanks. Paul is just saying, me and Timothy are here together, and we're sending this letter but the letter is from Paul to the Philippians. But then he says that, you know, my identity is a servant of Christ. That's an individual identity. But Paul doesn't want to just leave it as a bunch of individuals with a bunch of individual identities. At the end of verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Paul is saying, you have individual identities, but we together make up the whole. You have an identity. You are in Christ. You are servants of Christ. But together, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. The Christian life was never meant to be a bunch of lone wolves out identifying and doing their own things for Jesus. That's literally not the picture of Scripture. The New Testament has the church coming together. The church baptizes people. The church celebrates communion. The church, when gathered, becomes the church. You out on your own doing your own thing are not the church. The church comes when grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and we come together and we celebrate our uniqueness corporately. We each find our own identity in Christ from the grace that God has given us, that he has set us apart, 
that he has called us to his service and that he gives us his peace, we all have to have that individual grace from God. Individually, I must know that Jesus died for my sins. I must believe that if he came and he died for my sins and he offered to pay the price, pay the penalty to to receive the wages that my sin earned, that I trust that and I believe that. That's the only way of salvation. Once we have that identity of Christ, we come together and receive the grace and peace from God, our Father. That's our corporate identity. In the early 1990s, uh, Cornell University did a study, and they wanted to figure out for insects and mammals and humans, for things that typically live in a community, what happens to them when they are separated and isolated? So what they did is they got a colony of ants, and they took one ant and put it in a box. They gave it food and water and everything it would need to survive. They took a mouse that had only lived with its family and took a mouse and put it in a box and gave it food and water and everything. They took a bee out of a beehive and separated it. And then they also looked at humans, humans who had lost family members, lost their spouse, and then lived in isolation. And what they found was in every single case, the isolated died sooner. Every time. If someone is isolated, who is meant to live in a community, they die sooner, whether it's an ant or a human. We are not meant to have an individual and only individual identity. We receive salvation from God through Christ on an individual level, and then he calls us together to have a corporate identity. And our corporate identity is what Paul's talking about when he's talking to the Philippians, even though he's hundreds of miles away. He's saying that we have grace and peace from God, our Father. We may be separated by distance. We may be separated by chains and bars, but our identity is shared in Christ. Now, with that idea of isolation in mind, there are people that feel isolated. If you are the type of person that feels isolated, I don't have people, I don't talk to people, I don't get together with people, I don't have a community, know that you're not alone. There are other people that also feel that way. And maybe you do have people, but you still feel alone. The church is a place that brings people together with the one thing that we have in common, that we are sinners who have been saved by the grace of God and that he has given us mercy. And if you're not a person that feels isolated, just know that there are a lot of people that do feel isolated. So whether you feel isolated or you don't feel isolated, my encouragement would be to do something about it. If you feel isolated, let somebody know. Join a small group. 
Go to a Bible study. See if somebody wants to get lunch or get coffee. And if you're the person that doesn't feel isolated, know that people do feel isolated. And be the one to reach out. Hey, we're getting together this weekend to do something. Do you want to join us? Let's get lunch. Let's do something. The church is meant to thrive together because we have grace and peace from God who is our shared Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are saints in, and we are servants of, but we are all saints in Christ, servants of Christ, and receiving grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so Paul starts with servants of. That's his identity. And then he moves to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And as I said, the word saints, it means holy. It means set apart. It's a Greek word, hagios, which just means to be different from. It's the same type of idea that Paul has in Romans 12 too, when he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. He's saying, don't be like the world, but instead be set apart, be different, be distinct from the world. And that has both a negative and a positive side to it. Don't be conformed. That's the negative. But he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it has a negative, don't be, and it also has the positive, but instead, be. So there are many negative influences in our life that would fit that don't be conformed to this age. Certainly, if I asked you to make a list of negative influences that this age that we live in, that the world today offers, we could probably all write something and still have a unique list that nobody else matched identically. There are thousands and thousands of different negative influences that we could individually one by one list out and say, don't be conformed in this way to the patterns of this world. Some of those are entertainment and relationships that celebrate immorality. My wife and I don't watch a whole lot of movies or TV shows, but on New Year's Eve, we started watching something and every commercial was celebrating immorality in some way. And we like just started like noticing that. And it was a homosexual dating app or it was something. And like everyone were like, oh look, there it's that. It's this way in this commercial. And it's not even selling the immorality, it's selling something else, but the influence in the picture is that immorality is normal. There's lots of immorality, don't worry about it. That's just the life we live in. It's okay, just conform yourself to the immorality. For the younger people, mimicking identity and mimicking the values of celebrities or influencers, I'm only 41, and when I was younger, there weren't really celebrities or influencers. But in the last 20 years, that's changed a lot. You know, like we had like Tony Hawk. I would say he's like an influencer, and he just 
rode a skateboard. He didn't, I don't even know what he thinks or what he believes. I literally don't know anything about him because he wasn't influencing. His goal wasn't to get me to believe and act like him. But if anybody has a following today, they're telling, especially the younger generation, what to think, what to believe. If you act like me, if you say what I say, if you go where I go and dress like I dress, then you will have what I have and you'll be conformed to this world. Negative influences also include friendships that pull us away from godliness, finding our identity in material possessions, things that we know or things that we do, our intellect or our abilities. Negative influence could be seeking fulfillment in things that are outside of and other than Christ. Negative influences could be escapism, where we're trying to escape from something through substance abuse. And there's many different outlets that provide a temporary pleasure without any kind of lasting joy. Paul's saying broadly, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be set apart. Be holy be distinct, be separate from the world. But it's not just that, it's also renew your mind. So don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And many good things as well exist. Songs that teach biblical truth. There's tons of great new Christian music for every genre that teaches good biblical truth from Keith and Kristen Getty to Shai Lin. You know, depending on what you're looking for, good Christian music that teaches biblical truth. Another things that transform and renew our minds are regular Bible reading, reading biographies of faithful Christian people, spending time with other Christians who encourage you, finding authors who combine sound doctrine with practical wisdom in that order, that this is what God says, here's ways that you can do it. Having conversational prayer with God throughout the day and letting your mind be focused and filled with the things that God has, replacing the nightly news with Christian podcasts. There's lots of ways that we can renew our mind and transform so that we're not being conformed And that's what Paul is saying here, that the saints that are in Christ Jesus are those people who have been set apart, that they are no longer becoming like the world, but instead they're becoming more like Christ. So we are servants of, and we are saints in. And the final thing that Paul says is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are both gifts that are given from God. Grace is any kind of unearned blessing or unearned favor or unearned approval. The key being that it's unearned. Grace is something that God has given us that we don't deserve. It's like a bonus. I didn't do anything, I just got a bonus because of the kindness of my boss. If I earn a bonus, it's not 
grace. It's just part of my pay. But what this is, the grace of God is, you're a sinner, you don't deserve anything, and God still chose you. That's the grace of God. That I don't deserve anything, because I deserve to pay for my own sins, but God said, I'll extend you grace. I will give Christ as a payment for your sins. That's grace. Peace is easier to understand. It's having some sense of rest or well-being. It's, it's knowing that because God is in control of your past, your present, your future, that he is sovereign, that you can rest and live in confidence. Peace can be internal or external. You, know, you can have an internal peace and externally everything can be going haywire, kind of like Paul's life. Or you can have external peace and internally, everything can be going haywire. The peace that Jesus offers is the internal peace that says, despite whatever's happening, I have given you peace and a confidence that you know, no matter what, there will come a day when you will be redeemed. So it's the grace and the peace. Peace is often the direct result of being obedient to God. When we choose to be obedient to God, we see God working in our life. We see what he has planned for us. And so peace is a direct result of us being obedient to God. All right, so ideas for what that actually looks like. I got two of them. First is to live a life of grace toward others. It's easy to receive grace. It's not always easy to give grace, especially when we're upset or when someone has done something to us. So to be a person who follows Christ's example and lives in grace toward other people, the first thing that I would suggest is to forgive quickly. To be someone who is known as, if you offend them, they forgive quickly. The second thing would be to encourage often. Life is hard, right? Life is, you don't need to know that. There's hard things in life all the time, people here have lost spouses, lost children, lost jobs, will go home and continue fighting with their spouse, or will go home and be alone, or will go home and not pay bills because they can't. There's lots of hard things in life. The Bible calls us to be people who stand beside one another in hard times. Hebrews 3, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you in an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. There's lots of ways you can encourage someone. Text them, call them. If you get what we used to call paper and you get what they used to call a pen. You can take the pen and it writes things. And there's this old service that the government still pays for called the United States Postal Service. They sell you stamps, you stick it on, you mail a letter to somebody. People don't get letters. People don't send letters. It makes an impact on people when we go out of our way to encourage them. Tell them we love them. Tell them it's going to be okay. Tell them we're praying for them. Whatever you know about that person, take that and say, I'm going to pray for that person. And I'm going to tell them I'm praying for you because I know life is hard. The third way I'd say is to slow down 
when angered or frustrated or attacked. Because if we just slow down and we listen instead of, say, the first thing that comes to our mind, we generally make better choices. Maybe that's something that only I deal with. The first thought I have when I'm frustrated or angry or attacked is rarely a good thing. So I am trying to learn to be patient, to not say that thing, to trust that that thing is my fleshly response to a situation that God has brought to me that I need to be sanctified in. So you don't say amen if you don't want somebody next to you to know like, oh really, huh? <laughs> really, you don't say amen to that? Now you're in trouble, you know, because, well. So living a life of grace toward other people and also living a life of peace toward others. If we are to be like Christ, our lives are not conformed to the world, but they are conformed and transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we are more like Christ. We receive grace, we receive peace. And one of the ways that we can live at peace toward others is to resolve conflict quickly. Throughout the Bible, there is lots of conflict. The longer conflict goes on, the longer it has lasting ramifications. If you remember that kid on the playground, like you think back and like, that kid, you know, like 50 years ago, and you're like, I wish I would have made up with that kid because now I'm still dealing with it. I had a kid that always scratched us on the playground. We played basketball and he never trimmed his fingernails and then he sharpened them, like to a point. I'm always like, Howard, cut your fingernails. But I've forgiven him. So resolve conflict quickly. And there's times that we can't resolve conflict. As much as we try to resolve conflict, there's somebody who refuses to have resolved conflict. And in that case, Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And this is not the first line of defense. This is not your go-to if you're in conflict with somebody. This is not justification for your reasons. This is, I've literally tried everything, including going to somebody else and saying, I need help with a situation. What would you do? And then you do that. And then you keep doing that. And you keep trying to resolve that conflict until there's no option. And you just say, all right, Lord, I, I give this to you. Help me not to be frustrated. Help me not to be bitter. And help that person to also want to resolve this conflict. In that same Realm, I would say that the, the final one is to be proactive when seeking peace. It's rare in conflict that peace comes looking for us. Almost always as Christians, we should be the one who is going out and trying to be proactive when seeking peace. You did nothing and God was proactive in bringing peace through Christ to you. And I would also say that Seeking peace with others is easier done face-to-face -face than it is by text message or by phone call. It should never be done on social media, ever. Like, if you've got beef with someone on social media, please stop. Like, that's never a good place to resolve it. I had a friend this last week who texted me, and he's like, hey, can we talk about something? And I was like, sure. What are we going to talk about? 
Well, we can talk about it. I know, that's what you said. Is this like a, like right now or like sometime this month or year? Well, soon. It's like, you're really not giving me much here. Like, I'm trying to get some like, what is this about? And so I called him and I said, hey, so what's this about? And there was a little bit of tension. And he wanted to get together and talk face to face. I wanted to get it over with sooner. And so I called him and just wanted to do it over the phone. We got it resolved and it was all fine, but he was definitely right that it would have been easier face to face. He would have seen me, I would have seen him, and the conflict would have resulted in peace much quicker. But he had an issue and he reached out and was proactive to seek peace. It was, it was a great illustration for all of this. He reached out, he wanted to do it face to face, and I told him as much. I didn't want to do it face to face because I was busy. I didn't reach out, I didn't know that you were having a problem, and so you did the right thing. You came to me and said, hey, I got this issue and tried to do it face to face and tried to resolve it quickly. That's great. That's, the, that's part of that scaffolding. Like, I've received grace, I want to give grace. Christ was a servant, I want to serve. I've been set apart for God's purposes. Let me extend the grace and the peace that I've been given. And this week, uh, I was, I was working at the library, I had jury duty, and so after my jury duty, I went over to the library and thought I'd work on my sermon for a few minutes. And a guy came up and sat down, and he's from a different country, spoke decent English, and we had nothing in common. The, the conversation that he started with was something that I don't have expertise in or opinions about and really don't really know much about it. And he really wanted to talk about it. And I was like, I'm sorry, this is going to be boring for you because I don't really have much to add to this. But as we kept talking, I was telling him, yeah, there's definitely troubles in the world, but one day all those troubles will be past. And for those who know Christ, there won't be troubles. For those who don't know Christ, these troubles are nothing. <laughs> there's going to be such worse troubles. And he's like, Amen. And I was like, is that like what you're supposed to say? Or So I was like, so which side are you on? Like when I die, I don't have any troubles? Or when I die, I've got lots more troubles than I never even knew about? And he's like, I won't have any troubles. And as we were talking, on the outside, we had nothing in common. No shared identity. But as we talked we had shared identity that was more important than any of the things that separated us. We were different cultures, we spoke different languages, we looked different, we had different past. He was really smart and had like four PhDs. I'm on the other side of that. We didn't have anything in common on the outside. But what we shared together was grace and peace to you from God, our Father. That was our instant identity that we shared that he and I immediately could bond over, that we have been given grace by God, that we've been set apart, that we've been called to serve, and that we now have peace through Christ. The very last thing here, in the very end of verse two, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the time period in which Paul lived and wrote this letter 
There was no God but Caesar. There was no Lord but Caesar. Caesar would let you worship your other gods, but Caesar would receive the highest honor. And Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same message that Paul has. You know, we looked at Acts 16 last week. Paul travels and he's, he's traveling and he, after he leaves Philippi, he keeps going west and he goes down to Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, the people come and they're trying to arrest Paul and listen to what happens. They bring, they try to find Paul and they, they bring an accusation against Paul and the people he's with. This is their accusation. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. Jason was Paul's friend. They're acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. These unbelieving Roman citizens are saying, Paul and the guys that he's with are turning the world upside down. And then he goes on to describe how they did it, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The whole world being flipped upside down because Paul saying, although I'm a Roman, although I am a Hebrew, although I am trained like a rabbi, although I've seen more of the world than most people ever will, although I know more about the Greek culture than most Greeks do, my identity is in Christ. That alone is enough for unbelieving people to say Paul is turning the world upside down because his identity has been found in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, may our identities be found in you and in you alone. Lord, you've called us with the holy calling to be set apart, to be people for your will. And Lord, we ask that you would make us those people, that we would have grace for our spouses, grace for our children, grace for our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends. And Lord, give us grace when we are frustrated, when we are angered, Lord, help us to find our identity in Christ who, although mocked and scorned and not given grace, still chose to extend grace. Lord, what a, a great picture it is of us following Christ and saying our identity is found in him, so much so that we want to conform our lives to be like him. Lord, as we now think of our individual identity being in Christ. Lord, we also think of our corporate identity being in Christ. Lord, as we celebrate our communion together, remembering the sacrifice that Christ had on the cross for us, Lord, we pray that we would see this both as an individual reception of salvation, that we individually have received grace and mercy through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross but also that we do this together. We don't take communion alone. We take communion together as the assembled church. So Lord, as Paul says, we have received grace and we have received peace. 
from you being our Lord and from Jesus being our Lord. So Lord, we come to you today as a church, recognizing the the lordship of Christ, the kingship that you have, not only over us, but over all things. We're thankful as we remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, as we take communion together, as we remember that his body was beaten, that his blood was shed, that it wasn't done purposelessly. It was done that we might have our sins atoned for, paid for, and that we might receive grace and mercy, and that we might have peace that he gives us. We ask these things in his name. Amen.